podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to The Paddock and the Pavilion with Stephen Wallace. In each show, Stephen will interview someone connected to the world of horse racing or cricket. Hello everyone. Next month, the England Test side are due to play a three-test series in the Caribbean. And to get you in the mood, today's guest is author Colin Babb, who recently wrote 1973 and Me, the England versus West Indies Test Series, and a memorable childhood year. Thank you for joining me, Colin. Hello. It's great to be here, Stephen. Uh, thanks for uh, inviting me on your show. Well, thank you. I just wanted to quote something from Colin Grant, historian, author and broadcaster, who described the book as a vital account of the spirit, dynamism and cultural transformation of cricket brought about by West Indian cricketers. (laughs) Well, I can't beat that, can I? Uh, (laughs) What can I say? What what a very apt description. (laughs) Um, Yeah, thank you, Colin. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I would say that was uh, pretty much sums up what the book is in part. But what it is, it's um, it's autobiographical in many ways. It's my story, my childhood brought up in the 1970s in Britain and more specifically South London, where I was living at the time. And the spine of the book, you might say, is a 1973 West Indies tour of England. And which was very important for me because it was the tour that uh, hooked me on Test cricket, West Indies cricket, and I would say the game in general. It just confirmed my interest in the sport. And what was important when I look back on that tour is that we should remember that from 1968 to 1973, the West Indies did not win a Test series. And when they came to England in 69, their previous visit to England, they lost 2-0. So 73 was uh, an important year for the potential regeneration of West Indies cricket. And uh, the question is, or the question was, could it happen on English soil? Well, thank you for that. Could you let me know a bit more about your own background? My father's from Barbados and my mother's from Guyana. And I was brought up mainly in South London. and. The book is set in the 70s, and I was living in Streatham in South London at the time, from 1970, 71 to 79, 80. So it was a very important part of my life. Um, I was growing up, settling into another school, making friends, uh, finding out about myself, finding out about my personality and my identity. I didn't have any brothers and sisters, so it was just me. Uh, my great grandmother was living with us. She is from, or she was from Guyana. So I was surrounded really by uh, strong Caribbean personalities in my house or my flat, I should say. And outside, I mixed with anybody. Uh, most of my friends were a mixture of English, West Indian, and, and South Asian, a bit of a mixed bag of all sorts of people. So, yeah, that was my life. Um, and I spent a lot of time entertaining myself because I was left to my own devices a lot. Um, My mother was working very hard. My grandmother would go to sleep fairly early. My dad was in the army, often away. So I spent a lot of time um, finding out about myself and making my own entertainment. And one of the things I used to do a lot with my family and with myself or by myself was watch television. 
And television was the root of many things for me. And it was my guide and my link to sport. And I would say, certainly, this first sport that I fell in love with was football, and particularly Leeds United. Or, uh, well, I won't say, uh, I won't mention, this is a family show, so there are many other things people called Leeds United in those days. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I, I was obsessed with football in, in many ways. Um, and that was my number one sport through the TV, through match of the day on a Saturday night when I was allowed to stay up. And on Sunday, the big match uh, with Brian, uh, the voice of football more. But that changed um, when the 1973 series uh, took off, the build up to that. And also um, there are one or two hints that cricket was going to be a strong competitor to football because I can just about remember before the 1973 tour watching Lancashire v Gloucestershire it was a Gillette Cup semi-final, and I some, I just have a memory, a dim, distant memory of watching this game, and I think it was seventy-one, and the match seemed to go on and on and on, and it was it was almost it was very dark through through our black and white TV. I could get a sense it was quite dark, and David Hughes hit a six and a four and a four and a six or something, and Mike Proctor was charging in, bowling as quickly as possible, and. The crowd kept on running on the pitch and running off the pitch. And that was the first uh, sense uh, of watching cricket on television that uh, made me feel excited about the game. And then it dampened down for a while. And then it rose again when I fell in love with the Lancashire team of the early 70s. Um, I think most of your listeners who are of, of a certain age would remember that team with Clive Lloyd, David Lloyd, Farouk Engineer, Peter Lee. Um, who else was in that team? Uh, Frank Hayes. Harry Pilling. I, I can still remember these names. Yeah, my brother, my brother was a Lancashire fan, and I fondly remember the game. Yeah, John Mortimer was bowling to David Hughes in 1971. And That's correct. The game finished just before the news came on at nine o'clock. That's how dark <laughs> it was. Yeah, and David Lloyd tells a, a story where um, one of the Lancashire players uh, goes up to one of the umpires and questions the light. And uh, I think the umpire, whose name I forget, said, uh, well, can you see the moon? Well, if you can see the moon, how far do you want to see? You know, quite a famous story. But yeah, that, that, that really um, aroused my passion, so to speak. And then, again, I forgot to talk about the bridge that led to 73, which um, was uh, the John Player League. Um, again, uh, something that people, some people have forgotten, that cricket live cricket was on every single Sunday. You could watch the counties play each other in a 40 over competition called the JPL, the John player league. Uh, when we look back, it's amazing that uh, you could watch a sport sporting event sponsored by a cigarette company. Of course you wouldn't, you, you wouldn't get anywhere near that now. Um, but yeah, I mean, I was able to watch a lot of the West Indian players that I heard my friends and family talk about in the house play for uh, county teams every single weekend. And that was a way of arousing my interest in West Indian players and the West Indies team. So, yeah, I, you know, growing up in, the, in, in that flat in South London, where we had Jamaican neighbours downstairs, uh, Jamaican neighbours to our left, uh, and Irish neighbours to our left, the Jewish neighbours to our right. And we had different types of people living on the street. Uh, not everybody got on with each other. Some did, some didn't. But there wasn't a heightened sense of tension. Um, 
few disputes now and again, but we, we rubbed along with each other. And, uh, you know, I had friends from all different types of backgrounds. Uh, I, I got on with it pretty well. I mean, it's a play out, you know, it was all about going out, wasn't it? It wasn't about staying yeah. in, it was going out. There was nothing to do in the house, you know, three channels on the TV. But one of the things that uh, pulled me in was uh, every summer, if there was a cricket series, which there always was, it seems, even if England were playing a team that I didn't really, I wasn't that interested in, I'd watch it. I wasn't an England fan. I supported the West Indies, brought up in a West Indian household. Everybody supported the West Indies. It was my way of connecting with my West Indian identity. But if England were playing Pakistan or India or anybody else, I'd watch it. I'd watch every single series. From the start of the music, I'd be there at quarter to 11, sitting on the sofa or lying on the floor, you know, I'd watch it. Then I'd go out, play with my friends and run in uh, after lunch, go out, play with my friends. If the match was boring, I'd stay out and play a bit more. Or I might listen to the radio in my bedroom. Well, in, 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 you know, not listening, not particularly interested in the game, but just as background. And then if something happened, I'd run and watch, watch the action on the TV. What inspired you then to write the book? Was it the West Indies coming in that particular year? Well, and was it your first ever book? Yeah, well, this is my third book, you could say, uh, that I've written by myself. I wrote They Gave the Crowd Plenty Fun, which was about the history of the relationship between uh, West Indian cricket and the Caribbean community in Britain. Uh, then I rewrote that. I wrote a second version, a more expanded version of that. And, of course, well, not of course, this book, 1973 and Me, is, is the third book for Hansip Publications, who have supported me all the way through, fantastic company run by a Guyanese family, the Ali family. And um, the main reason I wrote it was I was thinking about what can I um, use as a spine for, for my next book? And then I thought about 1973, my, the first series I watched on television. Then I thought about the fact that uh, for that series, my dad bought a TV, a colour TV, just to watch that on TV so we could see the ball was red, the grass was green and all the rest of it. And also um, the other the other main thing was that when I realised that 1973 was the tour I wanted to write about, I started to develop ideas around that year and about, about myself and about other events that were happening, i.e. Britain joined the common market. Um, CARICOM, which I suppose is a Caribbean version of the EU, was formed. Um, Leeds United lost to Sunderland in a probably one of the most dramatic FA Cup finals of all time. I'm still, I haven't got over that. Um, Eurovision Song Contests, um, Miss World Contests, uh, the political situation at the time in Britain, Ted Heath, the leader of the Conservative Party, who was the Prime Minister, Howard Wilson, who was the leader of the opposition, various comedy shows that are on at the time, the culture of watching television. So that, that was the base, the tour, uh, and my connection with that tour and how important it was for me was the, the base. But then all these ideas started to flurry out. And then I kind of tried to catch these ideas before they disappeared, gathered them together and, that, and, and wrote the book around, around that. So this book isn't just about my experiences, it's about other people's experiences, because I've, got, uh, I've received input from friends and acquaintances and other people who heard about the project got involved. And uh, the central part of that was the fact that I managed to interview um, cricketers who played in the series for the West Indies and England. Uh, Maurice Foster, Lance Gibbs, um, Keith Fletcher, Frank Hayes, Ron Headley, who made his debut overdue 
debut for the West Indies that series. So you had a lot of material to work on, Colin. How long a project was it? I think from start to finish, it was roughly around 18 months, I think. 18 months to two years um, between, well, from coming up with the idea, sending it to the publishing company and having it uh, approved, as it were, and then doing the research, um, making the list of different types of books I needed to read, uh, magazines, listening to radio, old radio programs, um, watching clips of test matches from that year, 1973, and then listing. Well, it sounds quite crude, but I literally um, wrote down all the players from England and the West Indies who played in that series. And unfortunately, some of them have passed away. So I had to realistically think about who I could target. And then once I found out who was who the players who were still with us, I found a way of contacting them, either through the clubs they used to play for or from friends of mine in the media with inverted commas who had contact details. Yeah, and just you just became very persistent in finding where these people were. And the bulk of the book is is the stories, are the stories shared by many of the people who, who were involved in the series, who thankfully gave up some time and I just recorded their thoughts, memories and stories and uh, that, that was a very, very much a key part of, of the content in the book. But also I managed to speak again, thankfully, to Dickie Bird, who uh, of course was the umpire in the second test at Ed Preston. Yes, he was, uh, certainly, and the third test at Lords. And also some people came via social media uh, who were spectators at these matches. Um, so yeah, for, I use various methods to get people to come through and, and to talk. And so yeah, that, that, that was the main body of the book. Yeah. By the way, I just want to mention, I've got to mention my journalist friend Reza Abazali from Trinidad. He's a cricket historian and journalist and broadcaster in Trinidad. And I promise to give him a mention because he's helped me a lot in this book. He, set, he did the interview with Bernard Julian in Trinidad and gave me the audio, for example. So he's really helped me a lot. I also uh, relied on my memory to delve into the past, my personal past, and, and to get that on paper. And also other people's memories and stories. So yeah, that, that was a that was a basis for the book in many ways. Um, and the more I wrote, the more I wanted to write, the more people came forward and I added their stories as well. And we're going to talk about the series, the three test matches shortly, but one question I, I really wanted to ask you is, um, after doing all the research and even after writing the book and speaking to all these different people, how did you, because you were, how old were you when you, in 1973? 1973, I was nine going on 10. So let me calculate that. Uh, yes, I was, yes. <laughs> I had to think about that. Yeah, I, yeah, I was nine going on 10. So basically, um, you know, I, a lot of the, the matches that I saw, um, I, I couldn't remember everything, but I remembered some of it. So I had to speak to people, i.e. the players <laughs> and, yeah. and other people who were actually at the ground to remind me of what happened. But I wanted to ask you... Um, before talking a bit about the, the test matches, how did you feel as a, a mid-50-year-old feel after you'd written the book and gathered all the information? Yeah, well, I think um, what I found priceless was just people's individual stories and, and memories of that year. 
um, particularly the players. I mean, some of some of the things that some of the players said to me, um, I couldn't put in the book because they were quite personal. Uh, I didn't want to get into any legal wrangles. Um, but yeah, just some of the things that Ron Headley was saying to me. Uh, Ron made his debut in the first test at the Oval in the '73 series, West Indies v England, and you know he'd not he'd been overlooked for many years, and he managed to get his chance. His father was George Headley, a West Indian legend. His son is Dean, who played for England eventually. Um, but often, I think the story of well, Ron's story hasn't really come to the fore. And I really wanted to bring that out, um, his background, how he got into the West Indies team and, you know, why he didn't perhaps get picked earlier on. I thought that was really interesting. Also, um, finding out a little bit more about uh, the political situation in Guyana at the time, which is very important for me. Uh, being of Guyanese heritage to remind myself of that and how that played into the, the Guyanese community here. Also finding out a bit more about the 73 Cup final because it was quite emotional for me as a Leeds fan watching Leeds lose to Sunderland. But, you know, finding out the, the stories behind that match and and why one or two players didn't play as well as they did. So that was kind of interesting for me, really, just to digging into the past and finding out more about it and mixing that up with my memories. Well, the West Indies first came in a test tour to England in 1928, but reading your book, they came earlier than that on two or three tours, I think, didn't they? Yes, yeah, they first turned up here, you might say, in 1900, but it was all legitimised, you might say, in 1928 when they came for their first test series. And, of course, in 1950, they won their first test series on English soil. And at Lords in 1950, of course, cricket, lovely cricket, they won their first test match of with Ramadan and Valentine, the spin twins. And I think that's really important, that history, because I listened to that history subconsciously when I was on Friday nights, we'd have family and friends gathering around in our flat from different parts of the Caribbean. Um, cricket was often the central uh, part of the conversation, especially between the men and the dominoes and the rum and everything else that was going on and the, the noise and my job of filling up people's drinks and getting uh, a glass of ginger ale as a reward. All this was going on, but cricket and politics were often at the fore of the conversation. And uh, that's how I subconsciously find out. And that's how I kind of find out about the history of a lot, lot of the players going back to the 30s, 40s and 50s, because I heard their names mentioned in the house with a deep reverence. Moving on to the 50s, 60s and 70s, people like the three W's, Frank Worrell, uh, Everton Weeks, Clyde Walcott, and then uh, Rabadin and Valentine, of course, and later on, Clive Lloyd, Joe Sullivan, Brian Canai, Wes Hall, Charlie Griffith. All these players were, were, were mentioned in, in deep reverential tones. I'd never seen them, but it was a sense of history for me, which was very important. And the, obviously all, the, all of these players came here on tours to England in the 50s and 60s. And of course, you mentioned someone there. So Frank Worrell was the first sort of long-term uh, black captain of the West Indies. Yes, he was. Uh, and when the West Indies came here on the 63 tour, I mean, that was, that was very, very important. And what I like to talk about, and I mentioned this sense of history in the book, because obviously 73 is a, the pivotal year, which I talk about. But there's lots of build-up to the book about the past, and I think that's that's very important. And 63 was very important when Sir Frank Worrell came here as a statesman-like figure. Um, 
probably as important, if not more important, than any political figure in the Caribbean. And he arrives in England and leads a, a West Indian team on English soil, a black figurehead. I mean, that was very, very important for many of the Caribbean people in Britain to see a, a black leader coming out of the Caribbean. Uh, years before many of the countries in the Caribbean were fully independent. Um, so this is very important. And so Frank Worrell had a, had a vision um, to unite the Caribbean in terms of the players on the field. So he particularly was against the sectarian nature of cricket in the Caribbean in terms of the way teams toured. He wanted to see Trinidadians, Guyanese, uh, Jamaicans uh, and everyone else worked together to combine their efforts for the West Indies and for the West Indies people, particularly on English soil. Um, obviously, that was something that Clive Lloyd uh, instituted as well in the 70s. But Sir Frank Worrell really initiated that idea and, and doesn't get enough credit for it. So, yeah, that tour was very, very, very important. And his leadership skills were very important. And Derek Murray acknowledges those leadership skills and abilities in, in the book. Well, moving forward then to 10 years later, to 1973, we've got a very strong Guyanese connection with the captain, vice-captain uh, in Rohan Kanhai, Lance Gibbs. We've got Clive Lloyd. We've also got Alvin Kalacharan mm. and Steve Camacho, who is on yeah. the tour. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was important for me as a Guyanese person uh, in Britain to see these Guyanese people coming over. And I think that's what cricket was important, not just for me, but for many people in the Caribbean community here that, you know, there are people coming to represent us. They're almost uh, our, our ambassadors. And it was so important for me to see these players come over and, and represent the, the people here. And I guess it was very important for me to see these figures come over because Guyana is a, it's kind of a mysterious place for many people outside the Caribbean because it's located in northern South America. Um, historically, politically and culturally, it's very much connected with the rest of the English-speaking islands in the Caribbean. So, of course, cricket culture is very important in Guyana. And going back to the 1800s, um, when Guyana played Barbados, it was the first uh, inter-Caribbean contest in the region. So, yeah, it, it was it was of utmost importance for me to see Guyanese people coming here representing the team, um, which is something that is, is, is crucial really to the way the team connects with the, with the Caribbean community in that the divisions in the community are, are quite strong. You know, like any part of the world, you know, if you come from one part of the region, it doesn't mean you're going to get on with somebody from another part of the region. So if you're from Jamaica, it doesn't necessarily mean you would have met a Trinidadian unless you met one in England. So you had many people from the Caribbean who came to Britain in the 60s, 50s and 60s and 70s in the main, who didn't really know much about other people in other islands or had not met anybody from St. Kitts if you were from Jamaica. Or if you were from Guyana, you might not have met someone from Dominica. If you were from Barbados, you might not have met someone from... Grenada, for example, possibly yes, possibly no. But in England, all of these people generally uh, rubbed on. Uh, sometimes they didn't get on with each other, sometimes they didn't. But they had a similar uh, migrant reality to face, racism and prejudice. And also a cricket team they could focus on, the West Indies, who were 
I would say, a, a, un, a unifier in exile. We could all get together and watch the West Indies for five days of a test match, support them and be as one, uh, regardless of our uh, island differences or racial differences. Yeah, I think that's a very good point you make. Cause I think a lot of people often forget that we are, uh, the West Indies is made up of so many different islands, countries where, where I think people, yeah. some, there's this imaginary country called the West Indies that yeah, doesn't actually a, exist. You know, it's a false creation if you think about it. It was it was basically a collection of English speaking colonial territories bound together to form an international cricket team. The whole, uh, how can I say, the, 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 the way this changed or was forced to change in some ways was when some of these countries became independent in the 60s and 70s. So then you had a collection of nation states, basically independent nation states coming together to form a cricket team, which in the world of international cricket is quite unique. In fact, there isn't any other international team like it. So these are real challenges that historically the West Indies has had to face, but also it's had to face it um, in the Caribbean where, for example, you know, there are stories of, uh, West Indian teams playing in one island and one or two players from that home island haven't been selected and it's caused a, a real rumble of discontent. <laughs> and uh, so that's why, in a way, and I write about this in the book, from my observation, the spectator experience in England was very different because generally in Trinidad, in the 60s and the 50s and maybe in the 70s, if you went to a test match and the West Indies were at home to anybody. Most of the people in the crowd would be Trinidadians. You go to Jamaica, most of the people would be Jamaicans. Test match at border in Guyana, most of the people would be Guyanese. But in Britain, in England, it was a mixed bag. People from all over the Caribbean supporting the West Indies team. So I think in that way, it was quite a unique uh, spectator-team relationship. It was very, very different. And... I know for a fact one or two of the players found that comforting in a way that they weren't playing to a hostile home crowd uh, of, of Trinidadians or Guyanese. They were playing to a, a mixed crowd of people from the Caribbean um, who were supporting them and who wanted them to do well. The three-test series was pretty dram- dramatic. We had uh, three scores of 150 by West Indian players. We had a, a test debut 100 by an England player. Um, so Garfield, one of those players that got over 150, well, he got up, actually 150 not out at um, Lords, which is his final test century, his 26th and final test century. We also had a bomb scare at Lords. Mm. And uh, reading your book, uh, the first ever Women's World Cup finished just at the same time as the first test was starting at the Oval. Well, that's correct. Um, I know we talked earlier about one or two things that I might have discovered in my research, which stuck in my mind. And I didn't even know that there was a Women's World Cup in June that year. So that was something I discovered and had to write about because obviously that was two years before the Men's World Cup. So in, in a way, women's cricket was ahead of its time, you know, in that way. Yes, it was a very eventful series, um, full of incident. Um, I've obviously detailed it in the book. So uh, if you want it, you'll have to contact colinbabauthor.com to find out more. But um, yeah, there was all sorts going on. And it was fantastic to speak to Dickie Bird to tell me his uh, his tale of how he wanted to protect the the covers in, in the third test at Lords. 
where there was a bomb scare and a lot of the spectators wandered onto the pitch but couldn't get to the uh, hallowed uh, wicket because Dickie Bird had it covered. Uh, <laughs> not only did he have it covered, a lot of the spectators decided to sit on the covers. And Dickie was having this uh, conversation with many of them and he told me that uh, uh, some of the West Indies were saying to him, don't worry about the bomb scare, just look at that scoreboard. <laughs> West Indies 600 odd for seven or for five or whatever. So uh, yeah, lots of great stories. Um, uh, yes, and, and interestingly, we were talking about um, the Guyanese contribution to cricket during that tour for the West Indies. I mean, it's interesting to note that uh, in the first test, Clive Lloyd scored a century. In the second test, Roy Frederick scored a century. And in the third test, Rohan Kalai scored a century. So we had three Guyanese centurions in each of the each of the test series. And you're right, it was a very strong Guyanese contingent in that team um, with Kalajaran and Kanai and Lloyd and Gibbs and Kamach. Uh, I mean, and Fredericks, but Kamach was unlucky. Steve Kamach was unlucky during that series. Um, well, he didn't get to play in the test series because in a pre-test match, tour match um, at Hampshire, he got hit on the head by a young, aspiring fast bowler called Andy Roberts. And uh, the injury, um, I think he ducked into a bouncer put him out of the series and he didn't play test cricket again. So that was it for poor Steve Kamach. And that's how Ron Headley was selected to replace him. Um, but yeah, there was a strong guy in his contingent and uh, they all did very well and scored plenty of runs. But yeah, a lot, a lot happened during that series. And uh, there were plenty of pitch invasions uh, by young boys, young enthusiastic spectators and older spectators who should have known better. Uh, ran on the pitch. There was a lot of pitch invasions. And when I watched that during the 73 series, I just imagined that was what cricket was. People just ran onto the pitch at, ever, at every given opportunity. But obviously, you know, it wasn't what cricket was supposed to be. But it was during that time. Um, and it changed uh, the way I watched it because when I used to go to cricket with my friends later in the years to come, we used to uh, make sure we were on the boundary and run on the pitch and field the ball. And yeah, it was all part of the game. It was just fun, you know, to just jump up and down the boundary and run on the pitch. I mean, obviously these things don't happen now and they probably shouldn't from a security perspective. But yeah, that was your, that was all part of the fun, you know. And also when I went to watch matches, I mean, a lot of the book is about me watching matches on TV. But when I started to go to games, um, even though I supported the West Indies and some of my West Indian friends supported the West Indies, we would go with some of our English friends who supported England and we'd just have a great time. There wasn't real hostility between us and them. We were just young kids enjoying the cricket, supporting the team. And that was the thing about the 70s in many ways, is that the connection between the team and the supporters, particularly West Indian supporters, wasn't just about people who are cricket enthusiasts going to watch the team and hoping they would win. A lot of families, West Indian families, would go to the match, bring their food, have a drink and watch the game, meet people they hadn't seen for years. It wasn't just about the, the cricket on the pitch. It was about meeting people. It, these cricket grounds were a venue. They are an outdoor venue for people coming together and having fun and, and, and an outdoor meeting place. And the cricket just happened to be what was going on on the pitch. Many people I know who are West Indian weren't cricket fans, but they wanted the West Indies to win. So it was an outlet of frustration. It was a celebration of being West Indian in England and, and the cricket was all part of it. So you think the actual 
results of that series. Uh, West Indies won 2-0. Uh, they won at the Oval and at Lords, and there was a draw at Edgbaston. Uh, Frank Hayes was the debut scoring 100 He was. Uh, you did mention England. Frank, and I, sh- I should actually mention Frank and mention the fact that there were many English players that I liked. It wasn't just about me supporting the West Indies and not liking the English. No, no, no. There are many English players I liked, and Frank Hayes was one of them. He scored on debut. Uh, a ton which um, a few people in the book talk about how important that was for Frank. Um, but yeah, yeah, he, he he was a very important player in my in my admiration for cricketers in the 70s. Uh, he had blonde hair, he was very striking, he seemed quite a good-looking uh, young man, and he batted with flair. Um, Ron Headley told me he felt that at times Frank Hayes batted almost like a West Indian Um yeah, wonderful. All, all part of that 70s Lancashire team. So, yeah, it, it was great to see Frank get that century. And there are one or two people in the book who talk about that, including one or two uh, Yorkshire supporters in the book who actually quite like the fact that Frank got his century, even though he was a Lancastrian because he was from the north. And uh, as you're aware, certainly throughout the history of cricket, uh, there's... There have often been arguments about people from the north not having enough representation in the team, etc. So, yeah, that was important for many people to see Frank get his tongue. And from people who were sons and daughters of people of the Windrush generation, do you feel that the this test series in 1973 helped them in the community as well? Yeah, it was crucial because um, up to then, most of the people who watched cricket when the West Indies came over, were, were people who came over from the Caribbean. If you look at the 57, 63, 66 and 69 tours, when the West Indies came over, I would say that the majority of the West Indian supporters were West Indians who had come over here um, or people who, or young, young people who came over here when they were very young. But in the 70s, that began to change because you had people who were born here with West Indian parents or with one West Indian parents or another non-West Indian parent. Um, because during the 70s and 80s, many um, people were born here who were dual heritage, half West Indian and half not West Indian. But those who wanted to support the West Indies who were born here started to go to matches. So we had a bit of a first and second generation combination crowd, uh, which is quite unique in the 70s. That's how the crowd began to change and began to evolve. And many people who were born here, whether they liked cricket or not, uh, saw the West Indies team as a sense of representation. It was their way of hitting back against people who they felt were getting on top of them. So if we could beat the English at cricket, it was just our way of maybe feeling good about ourselves for that for those five days of a test match. Despite the difficult relationships we might have had with the police forces, despite the difficult relationships we had uh, in terms of wider society, um, employment, housing, job opportunities. Um, you know, it gave us a bit of respite seeing the West Indies do well. And that was for the first generation, people who came here and people who were born here with Caribbean roots. It was a way of connecting with with, with home, particularly those who were born here who had not been to the West Indies, did not travel back for for any reason. This is a way of connecting with home. And also for... Many of the generation who came here in the 60s and 70s, who maybe went back to the West Indies every three or four years for family reasons or so, but didn't go back so often. So that was a connection with home, having 
to connect with players who came here to represent them. And I know of stories where people have gone to watch the West Indies at Edgebaston or Old Trafford or Lords or at the Oval and had met people <laughs> that they went to primary school, for example, in Barbados, who they didn't even realise were actually living in England, you know. So you had these fantastic situations in, in the crowd at the time. But it was certainly a, a way of gluing some elements of the first generation of migrants who came here from the Caribbean with those who came here when they were younger or those who were born here. Um, whether or not they were cricket fans or not, it was a way of gluing the community together uh, and to focus on, on one thing, which is the West Indian cricket team. Um, and I always say this, and I've said this repeatedly in many of the books I've written, that you know, many of, the, many of the people who were connected with the team, who felt they had to support the West Indies team, were not doing it because they were cricket fans. They were doing it because of what the West Indies meant to them. And also because of the brand of cricket they played, which was robust. It was exciting. It was full throttle. It took no prisoners, but it was entertaining at the same time. So clearly a very significant uh, tour to England, uh, a tour that captured the imagination of a, a young nine-year-old watching the, the uh, match on his new colour television. And are yeah. you still a big cricket fan today? Yes, I am. A, I would say I'm a big cricket fan, but one of the things I always say to people is that I wouldn't say I was a sports writer or a sports journalist or a cricket expert. I talk about cricket. I'm interested in the game. It means a lot to me, particularly the West Indies team and various players from various other teams internationally that I admire. But I wouldn't say I was a, a cricket expert. But yeah, I, I would say I'm a cricket fan. And I still, I'm still, I wouldn't say I'm head over heels in love with the game because there's certain things about cricket that I don't like now. Just like football, there's many things about football now that I don't like, but I still feel connected with it because, you know, I chose to support the West Indies at the age of five or six. It's almost like an addiction. I can't shake it off. Uh, the same with Leeds United. Uh, you know, it, it's just interesting that in 1973, I talk about Leeds United, I talk about the West Indies, and I talk about how important they were in terms of my connection with sport. And of course, Leeds United haven't won the haven't been league champions till, since 1992. Um, the West Indies haven't won a World Cup since, what, 79? Um, they haven't won a... 79, yeah. Yeah, and they haven't won a Test Series in England since, I think, 88, if my memory serves me right. Yeah, that's 88. They, 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 they drew yeah. Series in 91 and exactly. 95, yeah. Yes, so, um, you know, <laughs> you could say I'm supporting lost causes, but I don't believe that. I'm just addicted to, to the West Indies and Leeds United for various reasons. And... That's the thing about this book. It's about how people um, uh, are connected to a sport and what it means to them, uh, not necessarily because they love the sport, is what the team represents. And I think that's what's key in this book. And also um, one of the important things about 73, which I really, really underline in the book with, with you know metaphorical red pens, is that Rohan Kanai was the captain and Kanai was Guyanese the first Guyanese to captain the West Indies during a full test series, which he did when the West Indies were hosting uh, Australia before they came to uh, England. So Rohan Kane was the first full-time Guyanese captain of the West Indies. He also was the first full-time West Indian captain of Indian Caribbean heritage, which again is something which tends to get overlooked, but that was very crucial to the development of the a contribution 
to the West Indian team from the different ethnicities in the Caribbean. And when we talk about um, race and representation in the Caribbean, we have to talk about this team in 73, which gave people outside of the Caribbean a sense of how diverse the region is. Um, we had people of Indo-Caribbean heritage playing for the team, Kalaturan, for example, Inshan Ali, for example, um, Rahan Kanai, for example, people of African-Caribbean heritage, um, Lance Gibbs, Clive Lloyd, uh, Bernard Julian, for example, a player with Portuguese heritage, uh, Steve Camach. Um, so, yeah, it, it was a team with people from different uh, ethnic backgrounds in the Caribbean who were here to represent the region. I think that's very important that people can see, and you can only see it through cricket, really, that the team, um, or the region it is very, very mixed in terms of its diverse heritage. And that reflects the different types of people for different reasons who ended up in the Caribbean uh, in the 1700s, 1800s, going back to the 1600s. Either they were taken there by force or they went there by their own free will. Well, thank you for that. It's been very, very educational for me. I can see now the challenges there must be to, for anyone to select a, a West Indian team. Uh, mm. England haven't won in the Caribbean since 2004. Yeah. Uh, what's your prediction on the three test series, which starts on March the 8th? Well, England have only won one test series in the West Indies since 1968. Um, for various reasons the West Indies always do a lot better playing England in the West Indies than they do when they come to England uh, particularly since 1988 where they have won a test series in England so I mean I'm not great at making predictions because I'm always worried that uh, you know I make a prediction and when I listen to a radio station and watch me on TV uh, months later I realize I might have got it wrong uh, it's always 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 a bit of a tricky one but um, I, I've just got the sense that the series is going to be a, a bit even. Um, I think on paper, if England picked their strongest side, they would have probably a better squad of players. But I think at home, the West Indies generally give England a good run for their money. I'm not sure how much the Ashes defeat will have affected England. I'm not really sure. As we speak, in, the West Indies have beaten England or beaten England 3-2 in the, in the 2020 series, what, what effect that will have on the Test series, I'm not really sure. So I guess I'm fence-sitting and thinking it might be, say, one draw, one win for each team. That I'll have to go on record and say that. Obviously, I want the West Indies to win the series, but I'll have to go on the record and say that. Well, thank you. That's very much sitting on the fence. You can't get much more than 1-1-1, one, 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 can you? So, uh... <laughs> exactly. I've got splinters on my backside now. <laughs> Well, thank you very much for sharing uh, uh, your test prediction and really talking yeah, about... Don't your put book. any money on it, please. Don't put your mortgage on it or your rent money. And for talking about your book, 1973 and Me. It's been a real pleasure, Colin, to speak to you. And uh, thank you for joining me on the Paddock and the Pavilion. Thank you very much. And uh, I'll just have to mention that uh, copies of 1973 and Me are still available from colinbabauthor.com Thank you Colin Thank you for listening to The Paddock and the Pavilion You can download the show on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, SoundCloud Stitcher and Spotify Follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at The Pad and Pad Don't forget, if you like the show please do leave us a rating and review
Social Podcast Network.